This is TechSnap, episode 425, recorded on March 17th, 2020. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes and I'm joined by Jim. What's up, everybody? Let's start things off today with our favorite certificate authority. Yes, of course, that's Let's Encrypt. Now, last episode, we were singing their praises after they issued their billionth certificate. Unfortunately, since then, there's been a bit of an awkward moment. To be fair, Wes, we are still singing Let's Encrypt praises. They're a great organization performing a great mission and doing a good job. But as happens eventually to everybody, they discovered a bug. This time it was in Boulder, their certificate authority system. Yeah, it's a bit embarrassing. It's a classic Go error that they actually accounted for in the code, in a comment, for another variable right next to it while missing that case. But you know what? That happens to every project. What's really important is how Let's Encrypt handled it. But before we go into that, we probably ought to give you a little bit more detail about what actually went wrong. So the issue is that Let's Encrypt was issuing certificates without the full set of validation for a lot of users for about uh, five, six months, uh, you know, since the bug was introduced into the code. What would happen is that the first domain in multiple domain certificates, which lots and lots of people had, uh, would get properly checked all the way around, but then it would get checked again and again and again, rather than checking all of the individual domains. So if you had domain one, domain two, and so on through domain eight, instead of each one of them getting the full set of validations, domain one would get checked eight times. Now, this sounds a little bit more alarming than the reality, you know, when you first hear it, because it sounds like, oh, no, well, you know, you could just dump in domains that you had no business issuing certificates for and your multi-domain cert and they would get issued. That's not quite the case. Luckily, the domain validation part was actually taking place properly for every domain in the certificate. The thing that wasn't happening right was checking something a little less frequently used called a CAA record in DNS. Yeah, it's a bit of an awkward bug in that it's a common mistake in Go, where a loop iterator variable is used by reference and not by value. Now, that's bad because on each iteration of the loop, that's going to change, and you want to use the new value and not the old value. And actually, in the code, which we'll have linked in the show notes, of course, you can see that they've accounted for this with the other variable they're iterating over, but not for the crucial missed one. So this pass by reference instead of pass by value error, that was in the loop that checked all of the individual domains and a certificate. When you set up a web server with CertBot or another Acme client, what typically happens is it iterates over all the vhosts in the web server and it creates one single multiple domain certificate with all of the domains on the server. Now, Boulder, the certificate authority on the back end at Let's Encrypt, it needs to validate each one of those domains and make certain that you know, you're actually the person who controls the domain and it should be issuing a certificate to you. Now, the good news is the domain validation itself was not affected. You could not just sneak an extra domain that you had no business getting a certificate for into your site and end up getting a certificate issued for it. The check that was screwing up due to the pass by reference instead of pass by value was one looking for a CAA record in DNS. I actually had to look this one up myself after uh, Let's Encrypt announced the bug. 
A CAA record is used to specify which certificate authorities are allowed to issue certificates for a domain. Now, the short version of what the CAA record really does is when you browse to an HTTPS website, if you get a certificate from a certificate authority that isn't present in a CAA record, should one exist for that domain, it won't be treated as valid by the browser, even if otherwise the certificate is issued by a trusted CA. So the loop that wasn't working properly was the one that checked to see, is there a CAA record that specifies whether we are or aren't allowed to issue a certificate for this domain? If you had domains one through domain eight in your certificate, it would check domain one eight times for a CAA record rather than checking domain one, then domain two, and so on. Whoops. Once this was discovered, Let's Encrypt acted quickly, but maybe too quickly? I know there's been some concerns about how this was handled on their side. Wes, honestly, you know, I think they did a great job. They discovered the bug, they announced it immediately, and they gave system administrators initially roughly a 36-hour window to replace the affected certificates before revocation. A lot of people complained they didn't see the emails that quickly. Uh, You know, some people were saying they only ended up with about six hours after when they saw the email and when the certificates were due to be revoked, and that was not enough time. I'm not too sympathetic on that one, to be honest. If you're taking this stuff seriously, you should be paying more attention to it than that. And unlike a traditional certificate, I mean, we harp on this over and over and over again, but Let's Encrypt is just so easy to work with. When your certificate was revoked, the workflow is not, okay, well, now I need to go log on to some site and navigate my way through a whole bunch of menus and click to say, I you know want to revoke this thing and renew that thing and wait for new validation and download it and apply it and whatever. You literally just go to the command line on your server and say, you know, certbot dash dash Apache. That's pretty much it. You're, you're done. I was affected by the bug myself and it took me approximately 20 seconds per server to completely manually update it. People who have more complex environments that are a lot more heavily automated, you know, with Puppet or Chef or what have you, could very easily have just set up a a recipe or a manifest or whatever your particular, you know, management framework calls it and automatically do it on all systems very quickly and easily. Right. What's the downside? You should be doing this and it is already happening all the time. And I like your point there, Jim. If you're concerned about downtime, if you can't afford to have these certificates be revoked, you need to set up better monitoring or make sure you're watching those emails as one of the channels that you'll be told about it. My big thing is you, know, you should be setting up monitoring that pulls certificates from the public facing side of your website and checks them for validity and expiration. That way you get a warning ahead of time and you know you're looking at the same thing that you know end users will be seeing. To be fair, you couldn't do that here. There's not really any way to say, oh, hey, we're going to revoke a certificate in 36 hours. It's either revoked or it's not. So your monitoring could tell you after it was revoked and you could respond to that pretty rapidly then. But the only way you were going to know ahead of time to fix it before you got hit with a revocation is actually to check your email. So with many emails left unread and only a half hour left to the scheduled revocation and more than one million affected certificates still not having been renewed, Let's Encrypt announced that they'd give an additional delay to give administrators more time. Now, we do also want to be clear here that uh, the certificates that actually had CAA records that would have specified Let's Encrypt should not issue a certificate for them, those got immediately revoked. 
That was roughly 445 of the 3 million or so certificates that uh, Let's Encrypt had active at the time. Yeah, that's a great point. The rest of these, well, just to be safe, they're on the list because they were issued during the time frame that the bug was in effect. We don't have a hard deadline for the remaining certificates, but Let's Encrypt has said that they'll be revoked as they get renewed and leave the ecosystem relatively quickly. One last note before we wrap on the uh, Let's Encrypt part of the show is that we want to remind everybody that these are very short-lived certificates anyway, and every single one of the certificates that was issued in error would have expired by June the 5th, no matter what, even with no action at all. Short-lived certificates win again. Let's move right along with another oft-discussed topic here on the TechSnap program, and that's AMD's line of processors. Now, the past few times we've talked about this, there's been one segment we've been waiting for. It's the Ryzen 4000 line of laptop processors. Wes, I tell you, I have been dying to talk about this since February 19th, when I flew down to Austin, Texas to spend a whole day at AMD's campus and hear about these processors and you know actually play with some real laptops with these processors in them in the lab. But I've been under embargo and I haven't been allowed to say a word about it and it's been killing me. Here's your time, Jim. I like the folks at Intel, I really do, but I gotta warn you, if you had plans to buy an Intel laptop, you know, sometime like right now, you might want to hold off for a while. The new Ryzen 4000 line, it's going to do the same thing to the laptop market that Ryzen 3000 did to the desktop market, that Threadripper did to the workstation market, and that Epic Rome did to the server market. It's going to be dominant in a big way. All right, since we're discussing the laptop chips, I think we better talk about battery life. Is this going to be another area that AMD stomps Intel? I don't know that it's fair to say that AMD is stomping Intel in battery life now, but they are certainly strongly competing, and I would say they are probably winning. Um, unlike performance, where AMD is pretty much stomping Intel all across the board, the same way they did with desktops and servers, the battery life, if you look closely and carefully enough, which to their great credit, AMD did, and they showed us, there are some factors where the Intel designs, they, they still win. AMD uses what they call a blended battery life testing. And what that means is they take several representative workloads that a typical user is going to encounter in their day, and they test each one of them individually. Those categories are productivity and web browsing, which they use PC Mark 10 applications testing to represent that workload, graphics activity, which they use 3D Mark Time Spy for, cores activity, Cinebench R20, video playback, Microsoft ADK video playback, idle screen on, which is Windows idle, and finally, idle connected standby, which is connected standby. Now, they test a system in every single one of these six different use cases, and then they blend it together with relative weights according to how much time they think a typical user is going to spend in each of these states throughout a typical day. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. It really does. Now, the, the best part about it to me is they don't just test the system with all these different things and then blend it together using their relative weight system and give you the one number. They actually showed us how well both the Lenovo Yoga Slim 7, which was powered with one of the new Ryzen 4000 processors, and a representative Dell XPS 13 2N1 with an Ice Lake i7 1065G7, they tested both of these systems on all these things. They didn't just show us the final number. 
They showed us the individual number for each use case on both machines, and they even normalized the battery capacity of the XPS 13, which has a 20% smaller battery. They normalized that upwards. Now, when you get done with all that, the blended number, even when you grant the Dell XPS a larger battery than it really has in real life, you got half an hour better runtime out of the AMD system. But when you look at the individual use cases, we do see that the Intel system had better battery life with idle screen on, idle connected standby, and running Cinebench R20. But the AMD system had longer runtime on video playback, better runtime on 3D Mark Time Spy, which simulates gaming pretty well, and better runtime on PC Mark 10 applications, which simulates productivity and web browsing. Now, personally, I don't spend a ton of time with my laptop actually on and idle. What I really care about is how long can I sit there and use it before the battery dies. AMD did significantly better when you look at things that way. Yeah, I like the real world focus here. Like you, I might leave my laptop sitting around for, you know, a few minutes, maybe a half hour here and there. But most of the time, I just want to get work done and I want my stats to reflect that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the one time that I care the most about battery life is when I'm sitting on an airplane doing things actively on the laptop nonstop, and I want it not to die while I'm doing them. You mentioned some issues with the Ryzen 3000 line and in particular problems with OEM integrations. Is this something that's going to be better with the 4000 line? We don't know for sure until, you know, we get a whole bunch of these things out in the field. But if I was a magic eight ball, I would say signs point to yes. AMD was a little bit cagey about who all of their vendor partners are, but they talked a lot about deep integration with Microsoft and with Google. They had a a Lenovo executive on stage presenting the Yoga Slim 7, and they had several other designs of laptop that were in the testing lab where we got the chance to play AAA games on them. AMD has also created certification programs and uh, AMD certified supply chain to give OEMs an idea of what components AMD has already tested and know work well with the processors. So basically, AMD is doing everything they can to reach out to the OEMs and offer their own expertise and make sure that you know everybody's working on good designs for these things. Now, this is what Intel has been doing with their own systems. They do an incredible amount of vendor outreach and have for a long time. I don't think there's any OEM that hasn't noticed what AMD processors have been doing to the industry over the last six or seven months. I think they're taking it seriously, and I think that AMD is doing all of their part to make sure that we get good designs. Yeah, I'm excited for an AMD-powered laptop that isn't at the low end of the market for once. Me too, Wes, and I got to tell you, these things... They're freaking compelling. One of the big things that I think is going to change with these new AMD processors is uh, I don't think as many people are going to want the big, heavy workhorse laptops anymore. I personally have always tended to like, you know, give me the suitcase size thing that has the gigantic battery and the huge processor and, you know, sounds like a hairdryer. I just want a desktop that, you know, I can lift and I'm pretty strong. (laughs) But there's not as much of a call for that anymore. AMD was focusing the most on their U-series, which are 15-watt TDP CPUs. They've got really good integrated graphics. They are all 8-core CPUs, some of them with hyper-threading, you know, bringing to 16 threads, some of them just being 8-core, 8-thread. All of these things are. And they outperform both Ice Lake and Comet Lake all the way around. Uh, Literally the only spec that 
any Intel mobile CPU didn't outright lose to the corresponding AMD CPU on was single thread performance. Now, on single thread performance, the one fastest i7 uh, Comet Lake CPU was on par with the uh, 4800U Ryzen. Wow. And that's it. That's it. It wasn't faster. That was the one that Intel didn't lose. And it was just parity. Yeah, single-threaded performance is just, it's not that important anymore anyway. A lot of people misunderstand that metric. Single-threaded performance is not really the speed of every individual thread, like in a multi-threaded workload. It's literally when your entire computer is only doing one single thing. And that that just doesn't happen that much anymore. No, aside from some sort of dedicated system, my systems are always doing a ton of things. I wish that industry testing would modernize a little bit on that. All we really see these days are single-threaded and massively multi-threaded workloads. What I really wish we would start seeing is lightly multi-threaded and massively multi-threaded workloads. Show me how the system performs with only two or three threads active versus with every thread the machine supports active. Now, that would be a good metric. Entirely agreed. The better you can model the behavior that our systems and us are doing, that's going to make it a more meaningful number. Say what you will about those quote-unquote mobile workstations. One thing they are at least somewhat good at is gaming, an area that ultra-thin laptops have not traditionally excelled at. But it sounds like this new line of Ryzen chips might be changing that. We got about two hours at the end of the day to uh, spend time in AMD's labs on campus where they had a variety of laptops and they demonstrated, you know, a bunch of the individual technologies, but we also had some time to just play AAA games on them if we wanted to. They had a variety of games loaded like uh, Borderlands and, you know, what have you. Hey, that sounds like a good time. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's not a bad time. It, it's a little weird for me, you know, because I'm used to, you know, desktop and multi-monitors and separate mouse and keyboard and you're just, you're, you're kind of laptop, keyboard, and a mouse or whatever. Better than a trackpad. Better than a trackpad. And I got to say, it was impressive, Wes. We're seeing modern, brand new AAA games running at 60 plus frames a second in 1080p on high settings on ultra thins with 15 watt APUs and integrated graphics. It's pretty crazy. It sounds almost too good to be true, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm not a, a major gamer. I'm not really trying to play these AAA games on, you know, the top end settings. But in the past, honestly... I've just sort of given up on a lot of laptop gaming unless I had a discrete GPU or stuck to maybe, you know, things that are low end or really easy to run. The idea that I could just have one system kind of forego the big desktop gaming rig and just get a modern AMD laptop and do everything, that's really tempting. So far, you absolutely can, although there's no guarantee that you know, software designers aren't going to notice all this extra power and start using too much of it for laptops again. But for now, yeah, I mean, you really can do credible AAA gaming on these things. Now, it's worth noting, AMD is still making CPUs that are designed for the kind of, you know, like gaming mobile workstations, for lack of a better word, that you were talking about with discrete GPUs. And those absolutely will, you know, have higher performance and get better frame rates. And we're not saying that every single possible AAA title is always going to get 60 frames per second. On some of them, I saw frame rates dipping down to like 45. But again, I mean, this is with all the settings turned up at 1080p. And when you're talking about 45 frames per second on a little bitty thin laptop on modern AAA games, 
it decreases the attractiveness of the big specialized crazy thing when you can do that good of a job on something that's that lightweight and with good battery life and convenient and easy to carry around with you. And it's probably worth mentioning that AMD's focus was very clearly on these U-series ultralights. AMD thinks they're going to be a lot more popular than the, the big crazy systems, and they spent the vast majority of their time talking about them, and I think they're right. Do we have any ideas of when we might actually get some of these laptops in our hands? Well, Wes, I had hoped we could get through this entire episode without mentioning the coronavirus, but uh, now you have raised that ugly specter. No, we really don't. We should already have been seeing them. But the availability of the new Ryzen 4000 systems was actually my first personal indication to how bad of a problem the coronavirus was likely to be. We were actually supposed to go home from the AMD Tech Day in February with one of these laptops, like literally just take it home on the plane. And that didn't happen. They told us the supply chain had been you know, encountering problems because of coronavirus and the dates have slipped and slipped. We're currently looking at an embargo of April 16th to talk about the actual hands-on review, but we still don't have the actual systems either. I, I hate to make any real predictions on that, but as far as I can tell, the problems aren't actually AMD's problems. It's the whole world's problem with coronavirus. Hopefully, we'll have some good updates on both those fronts sometime soon. Let's move from processors to power supplies here. Not something we often talk about, but Intel's new ATX12VO spec might start appearing soon in some of those pre-built OEM PCs. And it's something of a major change in PSU design. Jim, I'm not sure if this is a good thing. Yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan either, Wes. We'll go ahead and get the one really nice thing about this power supply spec out of the way. It only has 10 pins. So if you have a system that uses this new ATX12VO spec, uh, you won't have the monstrous wide, you know, two piece thing that you've got to wiggle into this enormous port on the motherboard. It looks a lot more manageable. You know, at 10 pins, it's only slightly wider than the, uh, the, the larger video card power supplies that you plug in. So that's nice. Yeah, that's not so bad. And the reason that the plug is so much narrower is that it's doing away with 3.3 and 5-volt DC rails entirely. Entirely? I'm, I'm using those rails. Yeah, you are, and the new PCs also will still be using them. But the difference is, and this is, <laughs> this is where we're starting to get into the part I really don't like. Your hard drives are still going to use 5-volt SATA power, and there's still the occasional random weird thing that uses 3.3-volt, like... LED lighting systems. Sure. But all this stuff is going to get handled on the motherboard now. ATX12VO spec will deliver 12 volt rail to the motherboard, and the motherboard now is supposed to have a buck regulator to step that voltage down to 5 volt and 3.3 volt rails for things like your solid state drives or your hard drives. Now, there are pros and cons to this change, at least according to John Garrow, Director of Research and Development for Corsair. For example, you can scale the 3.3 volt or the 5 volt for exactly what you might need on that particular build for that particular motherboard. But on the downside, you're adding features to the motherboard, which means more cost and more demand on the limited real estate of the board. And really, Jim, it just means more complexity, and no one wants to replace the motherboard when something breaks. I don't really like this spec. I'm happy that 
Intel has been clear. This is only something that we're likely to see in you know OEM PC builds. It's not something they're trying to push on the do-it-yourself community or you know more generic systems. But it seems like just another reason that you're going to find out that your Dell or your HP small form factor machine, you know, isn't user repairable. You find out that power supply doesn't fit because it has a different spec. You find out that, you know, now maybe replacing a power supply won't fix an issue anymore because the damaged circuitry is actually on the motherboard. This becomes even more irritating when you realize that, you know, in the modern era that a lot of these systems have secure UFI boot enabled, replacing the motherboard, even with one of the exact same make and model, may result in a system that won't boot. It's just not good. Yeah, I don't like that one bit. There are some claims here that it might make the interiors look a little bit cleaner, which... I don't care about that much anyway, but I'm also a little skeptical about because when you think about it, instead of having all your power coming from, you know, the power supply, now you're going to have some extra cables around where you're going to be plugging in things like SATA drives from the motherboard itself. Yeah, I can't imagine that's going to look great. Besides, I mean, if these are OEM PC builds, who's looking inside them to begin with? And this is not going to be a custom gamer build with vinyl windows and tons of flashy LEDs from what Intel is saying. You know, these are going to be like the little boxes that go on corporate desktops. Who cares what it looks like inside the box? Continuing our journey around the computer case today, let's talk about storage. There's been some big news from one of the most popular NAS solutions out there. Yeah, IX Systems announced that uh, they are going to be merging their FreeNAS and TrueNAS lines of storage operating system. Now, I think probably most of our listeners will be familiar with FreeNAS. Uh, fewer will probably know the TrueNAS name off the top of their head. Basically, this has been one of those kind of uh, you know free to premium sorts of deals. You can download FreeNAS for free and use it on your system and not have to pay anything. But if you bought an appliance directly from IX Systems for enterprise use, you were usually getting TrueNAS, which is the enterprise version of the same system. Now, FreeNAS and TrueNAS shared a lot of similarities. The code bases were about 98% similar. But to be fair, that's about the same difference between uh, you, me, and a chimpanzee, Wes. Yeah, sometimes it's the differences that really matter. Going forward, there's not going to be a separate FreeNAS and separate TrueNAS. They're only going to have the TrueNAS name. They're keeping that one because turns out that enterprise sales is really IX Systems bread and butter, and enterprises don't like that word free. Uh, they won't take it seriously, even if you put the word enterprise after it. So what we're going to have now is TrueNAS Core and TrueNAS Enterprise. They list some of the reasons and benefits for the change, including things like rapid development, improved quality with one spot to fix bugs instead of two separate bug trackers, simplified and unified documentation, and just generally some deduplication of effort. And, you know, a lot of that makes sense to me. It sounds like these were by and large almost the same product already, but with separate names, and that could be confusing or at least create a lot of duplicated effort. If they're really that similar, yeah, all right, I guess they're the same. Yeah, and they were having to QA them separately and you know redo a lot of dev work. The, the move definitely makes a lot of sense. IX Systems is claiming that they've already gotten one release out in about half the time that it would normally would take them because they haven't had to duplicate the effort between FreeNAS and TrueNAS. But putting all that behind us, they kind of buried the lead a little bit, and they mentioned that there's a new feature coming out in the uh, the new TrueNAS core, the replacement for FreeNAS, which you can download a beta for right now, called Fusion Pools. 
they say that you can now mix SSDs and hard drives in the same pool. But unfortunately, they don't say anything else about it. And I haven't been able to find any documentation of the feature other than IX Systems inviting us to test it out in the beta. Sounds like we've got some homework to do and maybe like they've got some docs to update as well. All right, Wes, well, moving on from IX Systems, but keeping with ZFS, let's talk about the new version of Canonical's ZSYS orchestration system that's built into 2004 LTS. Yes, please. I've been playing with Ubuntu 2004 and really enjoying it, especially ZFS on root. And a lot of that magic, well, it's coming from ZSYS, although you might not really notice it. And it sounds like that's by design. It's an abstraction layer, basically. I, I don't 100% love all the decisions that Canonical has made so far with their ZFS on root installer. They carve your system into a ton of individual data sets. That reminds me a lot of what a Linux or FreeBSD installation might have looked like in, you know, like the mid 90s, where you've got, you know, one partition for VARD, another one for user and another one for home and another one for root. And it's just endless. And there's lots of different things to keep up with and lots of different places for things to go wrong. And that's before we've even gotten to the boot pool. And that is before we talk about the boot pool. On the root pool alone, Ubuntu ZFS installer created 22 individual data sets. Yeah, that's a lot, all right. Yeah, it seems like a lot of overkill. Uh, to be fair, Canonical is clearly not envisioning users dealing with all these individual data sets directly. They're building a tool called ZSYS, and the idea is that rather than managing all of these data sets or really the ZFS file system as a whole by themselves, users rely on ZSYS to do it for them. And for example, if you go to install or remove a package, and something screws up and you get into one of those nasty app loops that you encounter about once a decade where you can't really figure out a clean way out of it. The idea isn't that you yourself will figure out which of these 22 data sets you need to roll back. Instead, when you reboot, you'll go into your grub menu and you'll ask ZSYS to restore the last system state. And that system state is a collection of, I don't know, probably 16 or 17 of those 22 individual data sets. And you have the choice to restore only the system state or to restore system state plus user data. They do not yet have a way to roll back the user data independently of the system state. So if you screw up your home directory, but the rest of the system works fine, for now, you'll need to fix that yourself with the ZFS rollback. I got to say, I'm already loving this built-in snapshot when I'm doing apt installation support. It's incredible. And I love seeing the little message that shows up in your buffer saving system state. Yeah, that is nice. So I, I have mixed feelings about the whole thing. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I love the fact that we've got an easy way to get ZFS on root. I love the fact that we're looking at things like doing ZFS hooks into apt itself, you know, to automatically take these snapshots. And I do like the idea of providing this kind of abstraction to make everything easier for end users. With that said, at this point, I do think the overall thing, it's still in very rough early stages. It's kind of difficult to interact with. It's not very discoverable and it's not very configurable. It's possible things will change as time goes on. But like, you know, for right now, I'm certainly not looking to replace my own Sanoid system with ZSYS. One thing that surprised and impressed me about this installation was really, I mean, how fully it was embracing ZFS. 
sure, if you're booting UEFI, you're probably going to need a fat partition to satisfy your, your bootloader there. But from there on, Ubuntu's using ZFS, and they're shipping a version of Grub with ZFS support, so it can read the RAMFS and the kernel right out of your boot data set. Yeah, Wes, when it comes to ZFS, it is clear that Canonical is all in, and that's what I appreciate about them. Yeah, 2004 is shaping up to be an excellent release, and surely something we'll be talking about here on TechSnap. But not today, as that's the end of this episode. But don't worry, there's a whole bunch more over at techsnap.systems, where you can find show notes for this episode, our whole back catalog, and easy ways to get in touch. If you'd like more fine Jupiter Broadcasting productions, well, just head to jupiterbroadcasting.com. While you're there, check out the latest episode of Self-Hosted, Embracing Automation, with returning guest Wendell Wilson. If you'd like more Jim, he's writing over at Ars Technica. And Jim, you're on Twitter. At JRSSNet. I'm there too, at Wes Payne. Thank you so much for joining us. See you in a couple weeks, everybody. <laughs>